on 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. At the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And because we believe that God has written a book and that these words are God's words and that we are thankful for that, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond with thanks be to God. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bytha, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Westside, today we are very privileged, and this time last year, um, well, actually February last year, we held a marriage conference, and we had Mr. Randy Garris from Ozark Christian College come and breathe life into our married couples. And this past weekend, he's met with our board, had dinner, he has trained leaders, and he has served us well and breathed life into our church. Randy hails from Joplin, Missouri. Randy's been preaching the gospel for 40 years, and this guy loves Jesus. Um, uh, 30 of those years were at College Heights Christian Church there in Joplin. He's married to Julie. He's got three children, nine grandchildren, and he has a word for us today. So Westside, would you please welcome Randy Garris this morning? You are very kind. And Jason has said several things that I've written him down. I want him to do my funeral because I'll sound better. So um, Honestly, I've enjoyed the time with you. Last year was a blast. Uh, we thoroughly enjoyed it. This one, um, the same. Uh, you have a congregation that I think you want to embrace. I think you have a congregation that you need to recognize there really is good stuff here. And I told tons of churches, tons of churches, that would envy what you guys are doing. And, and I just I want to applaud it and, and keep it up. Um, on a, just a note, uh, I'm reminded of the, the, the speaker who was invited back a second time to a place, and he said to himself, yay, kind of an encore. He mentioned it to the people invited, and they said, no, we kind of saw it more of the do-over. Uh, and so maybe that's what this actually could be, the same way on that. Let me get right to the issue. You have to have been in a cave not to have heard that the church is dying in America. You've heard it all the time. You've heard it on NBC and CBS, and you've seen the Wall Street Journal, and you've seen New York Times, and you've read it in the Atlantic, and, and the church in America is dying is, the, is, the, is, the, is what you're going to hear. Um, by the way, I, I didn't throw this in, actual demographics, uh, black churches, um, that is not the story at all. Um, um, Hispanic churches, that is not the story at all. Ethnic churches, that's not the story at all. But I will tell you, when they throw the demographics and the numbers up on white churches, especially white um, middle America, that's what they tend to throw up. Churches is dying. Many of you have felt that. You have said, oh, man, you watch the nightly news, you watch what's happening, you feel the cultural shift and change, and and you worry, what are my kids going to have for a church? What are my grandkids? And and many of you have even watched your own kids and grandkids walk away from the Lord, and and you're going, gee whiz, what is happening? Has somebody punched a hole in the gas tank of this thing? Well, what I want to say today in 40 minutes or so, 30 minutes if if God answers prayers for you, What I want to say is that the rumors of the demise of the church are greatly exaggerated, massively exaggerated. 
In Matthew 16, when Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, you need to know that the tide of public opinion probably isn't going to rock the pillars of the church of Jesus Christ. You probably need to know, if you know any history, they've tried to martyr it out. They've tried to burn it out. They've tried in every which way to mock it and have it go. And the church is hard to... You know what? When you have a risen Jesus Christ, that when you kill him, he rises from the dead, and he rises other, raises other people from the dead, it's really hard to bury anything that's his, that it, doesn't, that it stays dead. I mean, and, and so the concept about the church dying is just not right. In Acts 20, there's a set of words that I... I I know it's in the title and name of your church, but I want you to hear it from Scripture. The words matter. It's the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There's no doubt that we're an awkward set of people. You look at us. I mean, I'm going to quote him, actually, from 1 Corinthians 1. There's nothing much oppressive about us. We're just a bunch of sinners who recognize we had a desperate need of a Savior and we're process of transformation and we do look very impressive from the outside. If you said, okay, I'm going to add up all of the firepower I see setting there, you'd go home pretty discouraged. Except that the Lord winks and says, watch this. Watch this. This is mine. The church of God he purchased with his own blood. So what is happening? Something is happening, though. Let's, 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 what is happening? Well, what is happening is pretty clear. The tide of public opinion about the church is going out. The court of, judgment, the court of public judgment against the church is, is, is flowing and coming strong. Well, why? Because, excuse me, because there's the death of the socially applauded church. There's the death of the imitation church. Now, what do you mean by that? There have always been, at least always been, that's in, in my lifetime, and, and again, many of you are older than I am, and so you've seen more, but, but I, I've, I'm kind of a professional church attender for most of my life. There have been two churches side by side in the same congregation. I don't care if you went to the Baptist church down the street, whether you went to this church, whether you went to the, the, the so-called Christian church. I, I don't care which one you went to. There were two churches side by side within the same congregation my whole lifetime. There's the capital C church, which is people sold out to Jesus Christ. Come and die with me. And they've said yes. They are people who have surrendered their life. They are, they are Christ. To borrow from Galatians 2, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, you know, the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Man, I've met those people. They taught me to love Jesus. But there was also a little C church that existed. It was a cultural church. It was sort of the expectation of the culture. It's kind of, yeah, I'm Christian, me too, kind of thing. And in the little C church, you came to church because, quite frankly, you could sell a little more real estate. You could sell a little more perfume. You, you could probably get a few more votes. Your kids could get a few more friends. Uh, it was just, it's just a good, it's a nice thing. We built housing additions and we said, hey, come put a church in our housing addition. We'd love to have you. Now they didn't know what they were asking for because they didn't want really sold out to Jesus Christ, but we would like to have something nice and pleasant. And those two went side by side. There is the death and the removal of the little C church. It is leaving. At some point in time, the little C church has looked up and said, hey, 
You guys are embarrassing. I don't like your doctrine. I don't like your, the way you handle life. I, I, I don't like how you're judged me on, on things I'm doing in my life. Hey, I don't like this. Or, hey, I see how Hollywood and how politics see you. And last thing I want to do is be stuck with this odd uncle over here. So, so they are leaving. For what it's worth, the glory days of what we were weren't that glorious. Whenever you had the capital C church and the little church, what you had was actually what I'm going to tend to call the golden calf syndrome. Everybody know the golden calf from the book of Exodus? When Moses meets on the top of the mountain with God and has a real encounter with God, there's always an imitation that follows, and the imitation is down at the bottom of the hill, and it's down with a golden calf they call Jehovah. The whole of your life, whenever real worship occurs, there's an imitation. I've walked through Hong Kong, and they've sold me $13 Rolexes many, many times. I'm joking. I haven't bought them. But but $13 Rolexes are everywhere. Why are there $13 Rolexes? Because there's a real Rolex, and there's an imitation and a knockoff. And these two, the imitation church and the counterfeit church, have been woven together. Man, that was so confusing. First pedophile I actually ever knew was a Sunday school, Bible school superintendent. The meanest man I ever knew was the guy that prayed every single week at my church, different guy, for when communion was taken. Man, that's confusing. So you'd attend a church in the church we grew up in, and it would have great Christ followers, and it also had weird stuff with weird things. You're going, wow, that didn't look like Jesus at all. I don't, I don't know how to put this together. It's kind of like having two twin brothers named Larry. And one of them will beat you, and one of them will hug you. And you don't know which one's walking down the street at you. And the community didn't know who the church was because it had little C and capital C so mixed together. The second thing it was, not only confusing, but quite frankly, the church was watered down. You had to water down the church for these two twin brothers to get along and play well together. So you watered it down where you could just attend a church, but you didn't have to be the church. You could just attend a church, but you could still live in hypocrisy. You could stumble in in all kinds of ways you live, but be a part of it. And so we didn't even live as a radical church of Jesus Christ because we were so mixed together. I'm going to tell you, I don't celebrate everything that's culturally changing. But I'm not grieving the death of the Little C Church. I think your children and grandchildren probably are going to have a better church, a more effective church of Jesus Christ, a more real church of Jesus Christ than the church you grew up in. I don't just make that up off the top of my head. I've seen this around the world. One of the privileges I've had is hanging out in places around the world that the church is actually oppressed. Man, it is sweet stuff. No, I do not rejoice. I've sat with a little gal that has had the, the acid poured on her. I've sat with a gal that's been set on fire by the neighbors. I, I have a good friend in Laos who was taken in the middle of the night by, and he was executed by his own government. No, I do not rejoice in that, but I'm going to tell you, here's what I've discovered around the world. That the real, that the real church 
when it knows who it is and has clarity, and when it is a single thing, it's the church of Jesus Christ and not a mixed-up thing, that is the most powerful thing I've seen on the face of the earth. Mary. Mary's a little gal in the Sudan. I met her. She was carried off as a 16-year-old by one of those lousy armies that passes through, and they took this little 16-year-old sweet-looking girl, and they used her in every wrong way imaginable, but they used her as a mule to carry lots of their ammunition as well. She was with them multiple years. She gets, she's probably 21 to, so when she, when she leaves. She leaves and she has a child that she takes with her. I met her when she's about 24. She's the sweetest gal in all the world. I'm, I'm telling you her smile, her delight. This, and I'm going, how did you do it? How did, how, did, how did you? And she says, oh, it was Jesus and the church. Jesus and the church. Joseph is missing an arm. I met him in the Sudan as well. And Joseph with his other arm, while the minaret is playing the call to worship, he's pointing with the other arm and going, God is calling me to Khartoum. I'm going to Khartoum. I'm going, Joseph, you've already lost an arm in this whole deal. And he's going, yeah, but I know what the church did for my life. And I know what the church is doing for these refugees. And there's nothing like the church on the face of the earth. I'm going to Khartoum. And with one arm, he's pointing up to a Muslim woman. This concept causes me to say when it happens here in the States, it's not a tragedy. It's not. I was in Laos, and there was a, a group of tribes. There's um, complete Thai Dom, completely unreached, no known Christians among them. And a guy that got executed, actually, his name Kamsan, he went in there, and we, we put a soybean operation in, and he, he helped people to, to learn how to plant soybeans because they needed more protein but he really taught the gospel. And he taught it, and he taught it, and he taught it, and he taught it. Well, he reached these tribes for Christ, and this one tribe had only been believers, had only believers for a few weeks. Honestly, I say a few weeks, a few months, my apology. A few months. And some of them came for leadership training. And sitting in front of me, I'm, I'm supposed to teach them. I taught the book of Daniel on how do you live in Babylon when a government is so hostile to you. She should have been my teacher. But she just got out of a three-month re-education camp because the rumor was that she had talked about Jesus with somebody. And we asked her, what was it like in the re-education camp? And she said, oh, it was wonderful. Whoa, what, what? Because they hand you pickaxes and shovels, and they tell you to go work on the road all day for three, and, and her kids are back home, and she's three months. How's it wonderful? And she said it was cleansing. She said there are people that were beginning to follow Jesus because they thought there might be more rice in it or more money in it. There were people following Jesus because it might give you more money from the Westerners. And she said all of those would-be followers left. And she said all it left was the real followers. She said you can't believe how sweet the fellowship was, how joyful our worship was, how much our prayers were delightful. She said it was cleansing. I'm not delighting in anybody walking away But if John chapter 6, if Jesus will say to the crowd, stop following me for the bread, start following me for me, I'm not too upset when the church of Jesus Christ has a group of people who leave. And only those who really stay are those who say, give me Christ. Give me Christ. That's what's playing out. Now, I'm going to come at you today a little bit straightforward. I'm not mad at you. I'm going to get my pickup and drive home really fast after I get done, okay? But, but here's what I'm, I, I want to say to you. You have more in common now in this happening than you've ever had in your whole life with the New Testament. 
And when you go to the book of 1 Peter and Peter writes to a group of people, he writes this powerful letter to a church. And he gives them five imperatives. That church would not have looked impressive. That church would not have had popular opinion in their favor. That church had been shoved to the margins. It was just a bunch of crazy women and a few slaves and a few slave owners and a few odd men. And and nobody would have been impressed. And God used that church to shake the Roman world to its core. He gets into the palace and everywhere else within a few hundred years by that unimpressive church. That's who you are if these five imperatives are part of your life. And if you don't embrace these five imperatives, I promise you, you're just a cute little act on a corner somewhere. Okay? These five imperatives are what make up the church of Jesus Christ, as I understand it from the book of 1 Peter. Here they are. Number one, embrace the margins. Yes, you're shoved to the margins. Yes, there was a time they wanted you to pray for the opening of school. Yes, there was a time they wanted you to be de- build a church downtown in the middle of... They, yeah, there was a time they every politician... Now then, they're going, man, you're embarrassing, and they're shoving you to the margins. It's fine. Embrace the margins. I want you to notice the series of verses he uses. In chapter 1, verse 1, you are God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the, the provinces. He uses the word that we would use for refugees. You're refugees from a culture. Come on down in chapter 1. Go a little further. Look at verse 17. He calls you foreigners. You're foreigners. Oh, wait a second. We, we have citizenship in this land. We're people who belong. Yeah, I know. But culturally, you are foreigners. Turn the page. Go to chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 11, he calls you foreigners and exiles. You don't need to know the Greek language for some words to, to, to mean something to you, but every now and then the Greek does help. In a Greek home, whenever you wanted to use a warm word about we belong here, you use the word oikos. This is my oikos. This is my home, my family. These are the servants that love us and we love them. This, this, is, this is my oikos, home. The word that he uses in these verses is The Greek word, not my oikos. The world looks at you and says, not my family, not my home. You are strangers, refugees, exiled. I want to remind you that you're in good company with that. Because God says you are exiles to everybody else, but you're chosen by me and you're precious to me. And there's a whole line of people like that. Abraham was a stranger. Joseph was a foreigner. Moses was an outcast. David, David has to run from his life. David is out in the wilderness being chased. He's, he's, he's accused of everything imaginable. Elijah, you, you, you go down one after another after another. Wherever God does his greatest work, God never sets around and goes, well, when the court of public opinion goes back this way again, I'll do something. In fact, God has always said, No, the power is actually in me. It's not in any of the rest of this. And so Peter says to them, embrace the margins. He says in chapter 2, they rejected Christ. What makes you think they won't reject you? How can I follow Christ and be applauded by the world? That doesn't make sense. When Jesus said, come and die with me, he wasn't speaking poetry. 
He was saying, you're going to have to die to the appreciation of other people. You're going to have to die to the applause of other people. You're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to die to the cultural norms. Will you follow me? And some of you, I'm not mad at you, I'm not. But some of you in your decision to follow Christ, you felt social pressure to follow Jesus. You've never actually faced Christ and said, the world be damned. I'm yours. And at some point in time, you've got to decide, for better or for worse, am I Christ, no matter what the court of public opinion is. But you get to go stand with Abraham when you do, and Joseph when you do. That concept, I think, is so key that I would be absolutely lost if I didn't park here a second and say this. When I was a kid... I grew up believing that Christians were the home team and lost people were kind of the away team. I looked up a few years ago and we've switched jerseys. Now then, every time as a Christ follower, you wear the uniform, you're the away team. But here's what we had forgotten, a spiritual principle. We had forgotten light and darkness don't play well together. We had forgotten that the eternal and the carnal don't hold hands well. We had forgotten that God has a kingdom of heaven that has to rescue a kingdom of earth that really does fight against the kingdom till they understand it. And so he says in Peter, it's all right if the world does not embrace you. God does. This is the church, the good news church, that changed from the darkness to light. Here's the second imperative. The first one is embrace the margins. It'll be okay. The second one is you need to be the real deal. Be the real deal. The church that changes the world has to actually have a faith and has to actually be holy. I didn't put these verses on the, on the screen for you, but by the way, 1 Peter is not best studied chapter by chapter vertically. I'm going chapter 1, chapter 2. It's actually studied best horizontally. Um, if you would look at my Bible, I have five Crayola colors up here. And what I have done is I went through it, and whenever I found a theme, I marked it, and then I would read, and wow, it's in the next chapter, and it's there. And the next, it's like a thread going through fabric. They're horizontal. There are five key things he just keeps saying. His first one is, sure, you're outcast. His second one is, you've got to be the real deal. And here's what I mean by that. Let me just hit some of them with you. Be obedient to Jesus Christ. That's in verse 2. Verse 5, you who through faith. Verse Seven, the genuineness of your faith. Verse eight, you love him and believe in him. Verse nine, your faith. Verse 13, you've set your hope on. Verse 17, you have a reverent fear for the Lord. And all of those passages have to do with our faith and our obedience to Jesus Christ. You got to be the real deal. Look, let's look at verse just one little set. Look at verse 13, chapter 1. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. You want to know the church that will make a difference for Jesus Christ? you're going to have to have a real faith and real holiness. This has been several years ago, probably, I don't know, eight or ten years ago. My wife and I ran out to one of the pizza places after um, Sunday 
to go have lunch. It was just the two of us, which is really unusual. And we sat down, and, and the little gal, high school gal, came up who was our waitress and, and, and sweet and perky and sweet gal. But she was wearing an apron that I think might have started in the first Pizza Hut the first day. I mean, it, and it was stained. Oh, it, it had every kind of cheese imaginable on it and marinara sauce and, and everything else. And she's standing there with this bad apron on. And she hands us our plates, and the plates had just come out of the dishwasher. So I knew they were clean, but they hadn't had a chance to drain or dry. And there's water setting an eighth of an inch deep on both plates. I mean, I'm serious. It's not just wet. They're holding water. That's no big deal. I mean, good grief. We looked. There were no napkins. And we said, have you got a towel or have you got anything here that that we could... could, uh, uh, dry these plates. She said, oh, wow, those are very wet. She said, here, let me take care of that. And she took the, our plates and she rubbed them on her belly and she put them back down. And you go, wait a second, hang on. And we, we got so tickled. We, we couldn't hardly, I mean, she never even knew it. She walked off and we're just trying hard not to fall out of our chairs laughing at this thing. But you and I both know there's something very unattractive about something that has a contradiction in its, sanit- in its sanitation. Here's what I know. I know that you cannot be the church that Jesus uses if the real deal of holiness and purity is not a part of your life. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is not possible for you to be an angry woman who attends this congregation, but you've never let Christ really change your life, and then you say, God, use me, and God's going, you have to have an encounter with me that you are the real deal before things are going to... A man in this room that you're pouty and you're so, you, everybody walks on eggs around you because your moods move back and forth. You need to know you need an encounter with Jesus Christ. You're going to have to be the real deal. Your faith and your holiness has to match what it is to be a shadow of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's not entirely out of Genesis 1. We're made in the image of God. And we are the shadow of Jesus Christ. And if your shadow does not match his shadow, then something's wrong. And so his first imperative is embrace the margins. His second one is be the real deal. Now, here's the thing about it. Holiness and transformation of life does not come because you know lots of Christian songs. It doesn't come because you've endured a lot of sermons. It doesn't come because you've come to a lot of church services. All of that is is just kind of religious willpower. You have to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. And that's why his call to holiness is not just do better. His encounter is you're going to be sanctified in Jesus Christ. You have to be born again. He talks about the power of Christ in your life. This idea, I think, of encountering Jesus means this. Some of you probably might consider whether or not you ought to turn to somebody in this congregation and say, I attend here, but I don't know if I've ever really been converted. I felt bad this morning. He wanted me here uh, to meet with the team uh, closer to 7.30 this morning, and I was about 10 minutes late. I left the Hampton Inn in good shape, but driving over, I had a meteorite hit me. Uh, it was a big meteorite, about the size of a bus. It hit my, it hit my, my truck, drove us about 12 feet in the ground. Uh, I mean, it, it took me a while to dig out. I was probably 10 minutes late. And you go, you're an idiot, whoever you are. I don't you know, have idiot, you know. Well, how do you know? I'm not telling the truth. And your answer is, you won't look that same way if a meteorite hit you. You're exactly right. And you won't 
look that way if you've encountered Christ. Some of you owe your family an apology and say, I have been dressed in the Christian garb, but I have not encountered Christ. I have not really encountered Christ. And that's why my life has this crazy duplicity in it. And so Peter writes and he says, embrace the margins, but you've got to be the real deal. Here's his third one. His third one is the phrase, do good. I want you to notice how many times he will say it. Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans. Okay? Drop down to verse 15. For it is God's will that, you, that by doing good you should silence. Uh, come on down to verse um, probably 20. That if you suffer for doing good. Go to chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse uh, 13. If you're eager to do good. Look at verse 16. Good behavior in Christ. Verse 17, doing good. And I could keep running it through the other chapters. Rodney Stark is the sociologist who wrote about the first century church in Rome. And his question is this. How did a bunch of lame people, just like us, turn the world upside down? How'd that happen? They didn't have social capital. They didn't have economic capital. They didn't have... How did they turn the world upside down? Rodney Stark says, pretty simple. And it's these two words, do good. What I'm about to say, I I have to temper it a little bit from what I'd even like to say it. But let me describe for you the Roman world. If you go anywhere and start digging in the ground and you find any kind of civilization, you're, you're easily able to tell whether it's a Roman civilization or not by its sewer. Find the sewer pipes and you can know immediately whether it's a Roman world or not. Germany, France, Italy, North Africa, you can tell immediately if it's a Roman world by, by the sewer. It's actually the quickest thing to tell what you have. The way they put their sewer pipes together are a little unique, and so you can see how the two butt together, and here's the real one. Are there babies' bones in it? What? You will discover a Roman sewer system by the bones of the children. In the Roman world, for every 1.5 million men, there were only 1 million women. Why are there only one million women? And here's why. Because in the Roman world, little girls are not valuable. They don't matter. Economically, they're a drain. Economically, they don't advance anything. Culturally, they have to belong to somebody, and I don't want them to belong to me. And they use a practice called expose them. You have any number of historical deals where it's going, if it's a little boy, keep him. If it's a little girl, expose her. And that's why there's one million girls and 1.5 million. And what they would do is they would simply set them out in the sewers. They would simply drop them in the manholes. They would simply discard them. We have one Roman city. We know exactly who lived in that Roman city. It had 600 families in it. Those 600 families, we know everybody in every home. We even know their cocker spaniels, okay? I mean, we, we have a census of everybody. Out of, a fa- out of a city of 600 families, six families 
had more than one daughter. That meant the other 99% when a second girl was born, you discarded her. So how did the church of Jesus Christ change the world? Pretty simple. You walked the streets at night and you picked up little girls that nobody else cared for and you took them home and you raised them as your own. And you got all kinds of rumors against you for why you were picking up little girls, salacious rumors, but you loved them. And you did good because you were people who embraced the margins, who lived the real deal. And Christ loves powerless people and everybody's made in the image of God and the handicapped matter as much as the healthy and the little matter as much as the grown. And when you invested your life in doing good, it's not just the children. It's all kinds of stories. Rome was, the city of Rome, um, well, it's other cities as well, but the city of Rome was notorious for plagues. Bad plagues would come through. There were plagues that would come through that as many as 5,000 a day are dying in, in Rome. I mean, those are the worst ones, obviously. You know what they did? Abandon. So mothers would walk out of a house and just close the door with children in a bed and a husband sick and walk and leave, get out. Fathers would walk off and leave. Abandonment is what you did to the sick and to Christians. You've heard about the catacombs all the time, and you've heard about all the bones of Christians in the catacombs. What you've not always heard and what hasn't been said to you enough is it wasn't just the Christians who died who were in those catacombs. It's we stay, and we will give nourishment and love, and you do not die alone because Christ made you valuable even when you didn't know his name and they were the ones we have letters from Christians in Rome that wrote to their cousins and their the other Christians 50 miles out and say please we know the plague is going on but would you come help us love and they stayed and they loved and they stayed and they died and the Christians had the only power that Rome could never stand against it was the power to do right this is what I've seen anywhere around the world. I, I told them last hour, I was in Afghanistan, I was in Kabul in 2003, and there was an orphanage, the two orphanages, and they have about 1,200 boys together in the two orphanages, side by side, little boys. You have to get kicked out when you're 18. And these little boys, about 1,200 in these two orphanages, and there were nine, a total of nine adults who worked with the 1,200 boys. Because here's really simple. Your theology matters. And if Allah has abandoned you, and if Allah doesn't think you're valuable, and if Allah hasn't protected you, why should we protect you? And I lived for about two or three weeks with three college boys from the United States, and they had taken off a year from college. They had took a year to, to grow a beard. And they, they, they grew their beards, and all they did was hang out with these orphan boys. And they said the most powerful thing occurred every single day. You would call a boy by his name and he would begin to weep and would, would sink down against the wall and sit on the floor because no adult had ever learned his name or called him a name in his life. You want to know why people in Afghanistan are coming to Jesus Christ? It's not because we have social capital. It's because when you stand where Christ stands. I've gone into India 
I went into a barn. It was like a 1950s milk barn. I know exactly what they look like. I grew up with those kind of milk barns. Low roof, little dark, no, almost no walls. You open the door so cattle will come in and go to a stall and you can milk them. And I opened the door and it's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it took forever. We had to even bribe forest guards to get there. And we opened the door and there's 600 kids under the age of this high. And these 600 kids are picked up by about 12 families of believers who said they shouldn't have to live in the garbage. They shouldn't have to be abandoned. They shouldn't be thrown away. The Hindu name for them is the godless ones. And they said, no, you're not godless. You just don't know the one who made you in his image. And there's 600 kids are being loved on by those 10 or 12 families. I don't know what it is here, but I'm going to tell you, God never planted you on a corner and said, I want you to be sure and put up a nice sign so people will come to your church and get a nice road in so they'll be sure and come. What he said was, you go. You go, there's the immigrant who barely knows any English at all. Their first grade child's doing all their translation for them at the Department of Motor Vehicles. Have they been to your table? Have you been to their house? There's the the foster kid who's bounced 700 places. Have you taken an interest in that kid? There's the single mom's kid. There's the single mom herself. You go on and on and on and on. We're a broken culture. How a child can stand in their house, in their own home, and and say, boy, I don't see anything to do. And mom goes, you're kidding. You got junk you need to pick up and toys you need to put back. How can you not see it? That same thing happens to the church where on occasions we say, I don't see what we ought to do. And the Lord weeps and he says, go do good. Go do good. We had one neighborhood in our community in Joplin. It was a last resort. It was a set of apartments. It's a mess. I mean, meth and everything else imaginable. It was, if, if you couldn't live in these apartments, you are homeless. They averaged 1.2 police calls every day for years. This is, it's, a, it's a whole set of blocks instead of apartments. We had three families from our church who wept over what they knew there. They sold their houses. They gave up their leases. They moved into that set of apartments. They were, two of the families were broken into the first night. And that started a series of things. It's now not called the last resort. It's called God's resort. And they average a police call every 28 days. And we have baptized more people and we have had more people come to Jesus Christ because we said, I'm going to go. I'm going to go live where the broken live. The church of Jesus Christ is not called to be a cute little thing on the corner. Yes, we're going to gather and worship. And yes, we're going to worship well and hold on to one another. But the truth is, we need each other desperately because the world needs us to go. And so you strengthen one another and you scatter. This is the anthill of the kingdom of God. Are you doing what you're called to do? The fourth and fifth one, I'll just put them up there. The fourth one is you have to have real fellowship. Uh, I'll leave the verse out, verses out. I mean, you're going to find it everywhere. Chapter 2 has a lot of it. Chapter, uh, chapter 1 has a lot of it. Uh, chapter 4 has a lot of real fellowship. You know what a Twinkie is? Yeah, you do. A Twinkie is high-calorie, empty nutrition. There's a level of fellowship that we have in the church, and we say, yeah, we fellowship at our church. 
But what that means is parking lot conversations, hallway conversations, token conversations. It's Twinkie fellowship. You want to know when fellowship really occurs is when you stop at somebody's house on your way home and said, I couldn't drive by without sitting on the front porch and praying with you. I am so sorry about what's happening to your daughter. And the last thing I want to do is ask you in a parking lot, how are things? Can I, 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 I can't do a lot. I don't know what to do, but I can pray. Can I sit here and pray with you? You tell me who lives in your guest bedroom during their transition, and I'll tell you about fellowship. You tell me who sits at your table, I'll tell you about fellowship. You tell me about the phone calls that you make that you just weep with somebody, and I don't have any answers, but I just wanted to cry with you. Now I know something about your fellowship. If your life is not about front porches and praying with people and people at your kitchen table and your guest bedroom, then we have Twinkie fellowship often. The fifth thing he says is suffer well. He talks about suffering in every single chapter, and he doesn't apologize for suffering. doesn't go, hey, God feels so bad. you got to go through this suffering. In fact, if anything, he says, you walk in the steps of Jesus, and he suffered, and he suffered well. You do the same thing. Suffering is not an inconvenience to your Christian witness. It's an essential part of it. Now, the kind of suffering we'll do is not the same thing where Joseph lost an arm at the moment, or it's not the kind of thing where Mary's carried off by an army yet. But the kind of suffering we have is that you are going to get scars. Every emergency room doctor gets cussed out while he's trying to save somebody's life. Every veterinarian gets bit while he cares and looks after. You cannot look after people and you cannot follow Christ into brokenness that you're not going to have scars. And if you say, wow, I got scars, I'm not going in, then you misunderstood everything Peter said. No, come and suffer well. You love the people, that even the people that will scar you. But I follow a scarred Christ. I cannot be an unscarred follower and call myself a follower of that scarred Christ. They come together. Go home and take half the stuff off your Facebook page that shows your anger toward broken people. Go home and clean up your Facebook page where your sense of... of Wow, we Christians aren't being respected enough. Oh, did, did you not know that light and darkness don't play well together? But how do I love lost people? Am I going to like everything that happens culturally? No, I'm going to weep and we're going to cry together. But I'm going to cry out to God. What I'm not going to do is shake my fist at a broken world and say, I have this against you. What I actually have is this for you. Suffer well. I just did a prayer time with two families that are moving to a country. I can't even tell you what it is in North Africa. They're going to a country that is very rough. I held the baby last week of another family going to a different country where my headline I read this week was 30 were killed. Christians were killed there. They're going to these countries. What are they going to do? What do you do? Oh, it's pretty simple. And I guarantee you it'll be radical. They're going to go in and embrace the margins. We're not the center of the culture. It's okay. They're going to go in and be the real deal. They will really reflect Jesus Christ. They're going to go do good. They were going to go love people that their own culture doesn't love very well. They're going to have a real fellowship. You know, when churches have real fellowship, it's the burning bush that turns everybody's head and go, wow, behold how they love one another. And they're going to suffer well. And I guarantee you, heaven will be fuller and hell will be emptier. Because of that. That's the same life you were called. The exact same life. The mission of this church has not changed. 
You get to be Jesus Christ. You get to live here. You get to be the incarnate body of Christ. The one thing that's needed in this community is Christ has put his spirit in you. And you get to stand here and love and suffer on behalf of Christ for their sake. Dear church, do it well. Heavenly Father, I pray that the very kingdom of God that you established would not be watered down by us as some kind of lesser thing. But Father, would it be the church of Jesus Christ sanctified in every way by our love for you and by your blood and love for us. Father, use this church in powerful ways. Father, would every five-year-old in this community have a better life and an eternal life because of this congregation. Father, would every alcoholic, Father, would every single mom, would there be some tangible evidence that heaven has pursued them to their own house? Father, would you use this church in the name of Christ? Amen.